0: Hey, 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 everyone. I know it takes time for us to turn on the machines and say hi. It runs to their computers and laptops and their phones. First off, I want to thank everyone for thousands of birthday wishes I received for my 29th birthday again. I love 29 because 29 feels good. It's a constant reminder that I'll never be 30. So thank you for that wonderful birthday wishes and people sharing them. And and some of us say, oh, Facebook is dead. I don't think so. God, I saw thousands of wishes. It's crazy. Even though we're in TikTok and we're doing Instagram and we were talking about this a moment ago about how social media has changed the game. And nowadays talent has taken the backseat more to you being credible and exciting and number one on social media as to what makes you become the star of today you know but we'll talk about that soon so welcome to true house stories i am lenny fontana coming out of new york city and i am bringing someone to the stage shortly that I revere as one of the greatest a men to come out of the electronic dance music scene. And his roots, of course, begin in soul and R&B. And he will explain his life steps in our music business that it took to go from behind the record counter at the record shop and picking and being a selector, you know, and then... Promoter, record promoter, and then from record promoter then to eventually, of course, DJing in the scene and then becoming an A&R man and really becoming an A&R man, changing the game in many different ways. And in house music, there's not many guys that have, or women, I should say, that have not 10 years, not 20 years, but we're talking about decades of history under their belt. And helped shape a scene from both sides of the continents. From America to the European side to the UK side. And all above and across making this thing go and becoming even greater and bigger. And as music changed, his philosophy still stood the same. As I know, because I remember him saying it to me directly. As music was starting to get more say EDM style, he decided to champion and stay with house music the way he saw it, the way he heard it. And the last part of this is, well, we'll say, is created an empire, an empire that went a few different ways, not just because he was a great AR man, but he also had the wonderful entrepreneurship and foresight to take it into the millennium, you know, again, coming from the last century and then still keeping the principles and then creating something at work today that is still going strong and as popular as ever is a benchmark that people are going to be constantly still running to keep up with. So with no further ado, the DJ, the promoter, a and R and N, all the above. Entrepreneur and all, Simon Dunmore, defective. <laughs> welcome, uh, welcome,
1: Simon. Well, firstly, Lenny, happy birthday. I didn't, I didn't know it was your birthday, and uh, you don't look much older than twenty nine, so you're wearing it pretty well, actually. Um, and uh, thank you for the introduction because uh, um, it's sometimes when you're in the middle of stuff, you actually don't realise actually what your meaning or your involvement or, or you know or the end point of what you're doing you're just doing it and uh, it's only now um, that maybe I kind of look back and reflect and uh, and smile at the journey I've had and uh, yeah been very fortunate very lucky very blessed
0: not many not many are around, are around. talk about talk that. about that you are you are you know you Inter- and some have some have left, some have left this, it. This, this, you know all, you know, t- all t- t- reasons, reasons very very blessed, blessed, blessed and so here strong, here and strong and, and still and able strong. to so, i'm so, so i'm so proud to take part of this show. show thank you for, for, for giving your giving time. your time and letting it and letting it you know, time.
1: you know. yeah my pleasure i have time now which is good so uh, yeah all good thank you for the invite appreciate being here
0: and believe, and believe people are going to, be people going to have paper. So, so do, not, do hold, not hold back. And what you to say, we say, it. say it. You, know I'm okay. saying? you know what I'm saying? Okay,
1: I've got plenty to say. <laughs>
0: well, well, let's get right <laughs> let's let's into right this. Let's say this. I asked the, ask the same question, and it and seems, and seems to point everyone. How does music
1: feel? The young Simon.
0: Of course. Of course. And then as your life gets.
1: How, sorry, you dropped out. How does music? What sorry? How
0: does, How does music, music you, as you younger, as learn, you don't one more, one more. teenager?
1: Teenager. It kind. Do of, you know what? I, I kind of remember um, the first thing I, re- I I knew music like you know you're a kid, the radios on, your parents play music, and and I, I you know, music was always around me. My my mum and dad didn't have particularly good taste, so it wasn't great music that was around me. I, they, you know, they like Glenn Campbell and Gene Pitney and. Uh, you know, some some pretty kind of middle of the road pop music back in the day. But the first thing that I really remember was buying a, a magazine called Smash Hits, which was basically a magazine which had all the lyrics of all the of all the records that were in the charts um, at that time. And um, David Bowie's Life on Mars had just come out, and uh, I, I liked the record. Yeah, you know, I didn't really. I was ten and i didn't really you know i wasn't like a massive ziggy stardust and you know fan i just liked this one record and there was a lyric in there called mickey mouse has gone up the cow and i was like what what does that mean And it really kind of puzzled me. I now know that David Bowie used to cut out uh, lines from magazines and shift them around and put them together. And and that, that was a a source of his lyrics. And and, and I'm kind of imagining that that's what he did in that instance, because Mickey Mouse has gone up. The cow just means it's just random. Yeah. But that's my earliest recollection of being really kind of fascinated with, with, with music. And, um, you Know, I I, I I, this was in the glam rock era, so I liked the gl- glam rock records that were played on the radio Sweet and Mud and David Bowie and Status Quo and Slade and whatever. You'll have to forgive me, I was super young. Uh, most of those records, David Bowie aside, don't sound so great these days, but um, um, but that was what was popular at the time. Um, and then the first thing that really I really took notice of that was a real jolt in my kind of like musical conscience, so to speak, was punk rock. Um, because nobody knew what hit them when that, you know, when 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 the Sex Pistols were on the TV, swearing at presenters and and you know, trashing stages and kind of like the anti-establishment uh rebellious kind of part of that music, rebelling against the kind of the way the mainstream had had come. And um um and you know when when seventy six I was fourteen years old again, I didn't really understand it. I was too young to go to the gigs but but really kind of fascinated um uh, by it and then I, I you know I went through all of the the musical um um uh, movements that um that were around at the time, and music at that time was very tribal. So, you know, I, I was aware of what was going on. A punk, two-tone was a big thing. New Romantics was a big thing. Um, disco was a big thing. The soul scene, Soul Boys in the UK. Um, and, you know, influenced by all of those, all of those movements. And uh, um, so, you know, I, I, I feel pretty blessed to have experienced those eras. You know, listening to fast-tracking a little bit, but, you know, going to a club and... And the whole club singing Maze, Joy, and Pain. You know, I don't know what tempo that record is, 85 BPM or whatever. Something that would really struggle in these times. But whole club in unison singing that record word for word, or Kenny Burt rising to the top, and you know, th- those kind of records. And and um, you know, that's that stands strong with me, with me now, you know. I look back on that and 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 smile inside and outwardly. So so that was my that was my my early introduction to music and,
0: and what i'm going to do is when i speak because i'm having some analog uh feedback i'm just going to mute you and then i'll unmute you so i'm not being um insulting because what's happening is we're getting a, like a delay i don't know if it's something with the echo go yeah so 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 hold on one second hold on one second let me just so here's my question so of course you could never have those type of tempo changes now because you can, but you know how the night works compared to then, because even Francois has always said Convorkin has always said the same thing. You've had nights where in the middle of the night, you would have a fast wreck and then drop down to have a reset. You could never you know it's very difficult to do that now in these days days. I've seen
1: I've seen it occasionally. Um, but DJs have to be really brave and 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 really just on, on top of their game and know that they've got their, their audience and their dance floor in a place where they can they can jolt people like that. And when people are jolted on the dance floor, it all it it's a great thing because it, it you know you remember it. You remember those moments on the dance floor. I mean, everything's so seamless now and so syncopated, and and I understand the craft of mixing is is really important, but when you know my early days of clubbing they would the dj would would mix not mix but blend and sequence and 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 curate a night by playing some rare groove some soul maybe a little bit of jazz maybe a little bit of hip-hop some early house and definitely some garage records and some records like inner life or d train or you know things that were coming out on south soul or prelude uh, you know, uh, and, and, and Philly. I mean, Philly, of course, probably my favorite label uh, uh, of all time. And you know, they're kind of their soul records, their disco records. They're, you know, they're uh, and 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 they're classic. They 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 were written and and arranged, and you know, they had stringing uh, uh, sections, and you know, people that would go in and arrange the whole musical journey. I mean, I, I remember listening to a little Holloway record that's like um it's like nine minutes long for start to finish it's not doing the same thing for you know for any kind of like extended moment in time now a record is nine minutes long it literally starts and stops pretty much does the same thing throughout and um so those records kind of kept kept you interested but the dj what the point i'm trying to make was would literally cull his set from the best of multiple genres and then play them across the board, and the, the audience and the dance floor would go with them. You know, I, I remember seeing Norman Jay, or you know, playing at, at, at Shake and Finger Pop or Good Times or whatever, and he'd play you know, a chic record next to uh, an a diva record next to you uh, know, uh, whatever. It was eclectic, super eclectic, and and good for it.
0: Did you make it to Wigan to the Wigan casino during that time the Northern Soul time? No,
1: uh, I was I was I was definitely too young. Plus that was the Northern Soul scene Much more kind of up tempo and 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 much more driven and and I was more into Southern Soul, which was a bit more kind of laid back, a bit more groovy, a bit more kind of schmoochy in 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 the lyrics, love songs and uh, and more two-step. It was you know, it's always been that kind of divide in in the UK between the north and the south, where you know when disco was big in the south, high energy was huge. In, in the north, they like their records way, way more driven. I mean, probably because of the drugs they take, in all honesty.
0: Ska, rockabilly, rockabilly, and salt, I'm presuming, is more your let's say your pedigree.
1: So, early days, I was <laughs> this is always uh, makes me chuckle. Um, I was deeply affected by Elvis dying, and I i just remember the headline and i was never really into elvis but you know the, the radio stations played all of his records for I don't know, days on end and whatever and it kind of got me into that sound but it was a little bit too polished and commercial for me and i ended up like in rockabilly it became a thing for me um and um what happened was, you know, there was a community of, of people that were into that scene and that sound and uh, there was lots of parties hanging on, a, a, a being held around London. And, I, and you know, I became part of, of, of that crew. Um, but what happened is I went to college and I had to leave London. And I went to college in Derby and there was no scene there whatsoever. Um, so I just kind of moved away from that sound. The college was a fashion college. And um, so there was a lot of kind of um very kind of fashionable people um attending and the the new thing was new romantics and you know spandau ballet and visage and um, all the things that was going on at the blitz club and whatever so i i kind of became a little bit influenced um a little bit influenced by that the stepping stone in between was a brief moment a a brief two-tone moment with um with the specials and madness and stuff and you know it, it was like it was like they were the things that were hitting you over the head when you were you know you were young and you were into music in the in the uk in the late 70s and, and early 1980s
0: so at that time of course you're now going to become a, a record promoter i guess or you're working at a record shop you'll tell us the events of how it steps from college because That's funny that you actually was in a fashion college, so was Frankie Knuckles, and they wound up not doing anything with fashion, as you know. Frankie became Frankie Knuckles, and Larry LeVan became Larry LeVan, and they were both into that type of stuff of doing fashion designing. So music and
1: fashion always work, but I'll let you tell the events. Well, so basically what happened was, um, you know, the the new romantic scene was very uh, influenced by... By progressive music you know things like records like craft work and, and 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 stuff like that were huge on that scene and you know the electronic scene was just starting to begin i guess people had sequences and drum machines and, and whatever and it made people music really uh, certainly dance music easier to produce Um, And also disco. I mean, if you listen to early Spandau Valley records with, you know, chant number one, it's a disco record, essentially. Haircut 100, favourite shirt, a disco record. So it was a kind of mixture of all of those things. And I kind of gravitated more to the disco side of things. And, you know, disco obviously died uh, a pretty ugly death quite quickly with the disco sucks thing. Um, You know, obviously there were all sorts of... um, um historical kind of versions of that whether it be a racist thing or you know the 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 record company record industry kind of recoiling against disco because it never sold albums and it was traditionally a rock business and they couldn't cope with the homophobia that was maybe associated with that anyway disco sucks happened but out of that came the garage scene and, and records that we talked about earlier with, you know, like um, uh, D train or uh, inner life or um, Maxine Singleton. Don't you love it? Records that I absolutely still love to this day. And they were kind of post disco pre house. Um, and they, they were the records that I started to buy. Um, I'd go down to my in, import shop and I'd buy these records. I'd buy some rare groove records and all of my friends and all of my circle were unaware of these records, so I would make them tapes. I'd go, I'd go buy my records. I'd take them back. I'd pick the favorite album track. I'd pick my favorite twelve inch, my seven inch. Um, a lot, some jazz, some obscurities, um, and I would make people tapes. And these tapes became so popular uh, in the area of West London that I lived in Uxbridge um, that people started to ask me to DJ. Um, this story is told by so many people it's a similar journey and and it's just all about music curation basically and passing your knowledge on and passing your taste on so making cassettes for people is my first example probably of music curation um and you know it it, it led me to become a dj um when i was dj and i um i hustled I I I I I earned a little bit of money by writing for blues and soul. I earned a little bit of money by um, putting on coaches to gigs and events in London that I thought people would like to go to. Things like Nicky Holloway Special Branch, Giles Peterson, we playing Pete Tong will be playing Norman Jay, Jay Strongman, um, you know, very popular. D, Bob Jones, um, and these events were held in central London, and I would organize a coach, a pickup point. A meet point at the end of the night, and drive everybody back, and again, it was about bringing like-minded people together to go to an event. Um, and and I was just just ways of, of of trying to earn a living without having a proper job, basically. Um, and then to be closer to the source, to get my records earlier, to be you know in the real thick of it. Uh, I ended up getting a job at a place called Record and Disco Centre in West London, um, and that was my job behind the counter uh the record van would would uh, again music creation uh, curation so uh, a van would turn up with all the hottest 12 inches that had just landed at heathrow airport they'd stop by the uh, the shop and and again this story could be told in new york or, or or berlin or paris or you know any special independent store the van would pull over you'd go in you'd take a pile of records out you played them on the decks you go oh, i'll have 15 of that i have 50 of that i'll have 100 of that if you thought it was a you know and, and you go i can only give you 30 because i've got to give other shops some and i've got a limit and whatever but you but the whole point of it was you were buying records then to sell to djs and um so your taste and and, and, and your selection had to be in line the great thing about it was was if you gave it to the right DJs and they played the records, then you'd get a second wave of demand because the punters would come in They'd say they'd have a list of records that Norman Jay had played or Bobby and Steve had played or Paul Anderson had played and whatever. And they'd come in, have you got this? Have you got this? Sometimes it would be a promo and they'd have to wait. Sometimes it would be an import and it'd be out of stock. and, And that kind of demand that was created just added to the, to the hype of records. Um, But what also happened was record labels used to come to my store and give me a box of promos to give to the DJs for the exact reason I was talking about now. So they would then play them to their audience and they would create a buzz. Um, And I guess the feedback that I gave them and uh, the the, the way that I pushed them eventually led me uh, to be offered a job doing club promotions at a label called Cool Tempo Records, which was a hot UK dance imprint of Christmas records at the time. Um, and I did club promotions. And once I got my foot in the door, at a record label, there was nothing else I wanted to do. I was absolutely, nothing was going to stop me.
0: And, and that's when I had met you too, around that time, Cool Temple, when you were down there as well. I remember that. Um, and you were great at that job. It wasn't like you didn't. It, so the, initially at the record shop in Rainer's Lane, you know, you get your, education on how you're listening as a DJ, but you're also playing A&R as well. And even though you're not being A&R, but you are, it's like, it's like you're doing your, as you call your apprenticeship in England. I love that word. It's like you were getting ready, you know, to yeah. to, to have that next moment of, but pre to that, you are writing for Blues and Soul, correct? How long did that last? Last.
1: Uh, probably about 18 months I used to I I also used to do a little fanzine called London Soul Circular where I'd it was literally I'd photocopy a, a sheet of paper and I'd post it to people and it had record reviews and gig updates and uh, it was very basic. It, you know, it's like a little fanzine thing. I and mean, we're talking, you know, 1984. It was, you know, I just got a compact computer I mean, it barely did anything other than, you know, process some some words, It, you know. And then, you know, the, the amazing thing was when you could actually put people's address into it and it would print out labels with people's address and it would save you writing out all of that shit that used to take ages in time. It's just like we lived through all of this. You know, I, it was like... If I wanted to speak to a DJ, there was no email, there was no WhatsApp. I had to, I had to phone them, you know, and they had to be in. And maybe, you know, they, maybe they were busy and they weren't, so I had to call back. And Jesus, it was like everything was was long back in the day. It was uh, people don't realize how easy they have it, have it these days. Anyway, um, but you know that, you know that was it. So like I said, I did lots of shit. I just hustled. I just wanted to be involved. Uh, literally every waking minute was uh evolved around shouting about records or or promoting records or promoting about gigs or talent that i loved or djs that i wanted to go and see The, the subtext of it probably i mean is i wanted to impress girls probably i just wanted to be cool i worked really hard at trying to be cool probably never really succeeding but you know i think that that's that's a driving force for a lot of people
0: let me let me say this you know I had Ralphie D on the show from Odyssey two thousand one. You know, part of the disco movement and Saturday Night fever. And what did he say? The same thing. Two things he did: washed and waxed his car, and thought about women. To and DJing was just, you know, like, hey, I'm. This is super cool, but I wanted to meet the women. So when you say that, that seems to be similar with a lot of the people.
1: You I think it's a common theme. Plus, I'm a terrible dancer. I was never gonna be successful on the dance floor. So, being cool behind the decks and just you know, and just trying to uh, trying to impress people with selection. I mean, music is is really important to a lot of people, you know. And 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 uh, you know, one of the memes I see very regularly on Instagram is people that introduce you to music are important. And and and, and I really think that that shouldn't be underplayed. Um, and the problem that there is now is it's just, it just comes at you relentlessly from all angles. And sometimes it's a little bit overwhelming. We're back in the day when it came at you in a much kind of slower, more considered way, things would really sink in. I mean, TikTok, I can't reconcile with TikTok. You listen to a record for 15 fucking seconds. How can you listen to a record for 15 seconds? If you only listen to a record for 15 seconds, it can't be very good. Well, maybe the chorus is good, but it's all about, for me, it's about what the story of a record tells. You know, the intro, the middle eight, the vamp section. You know, I, I listen, you know, the South Soul Orchestra seconds. I can listen to that record every day for the rest of my life because, She's talking about she had to go back for seconds because she just wasn't satisfied. She had to go back to see her guy because she wanted some more. And then in the middle of it, she tells why she went back and she banged on his door. And then, you know, Lillette Holloway just goes on this vamp and it's it's soul and it's disco and it's just arranged and, and whatever. And it's um, I you know, I I I get pretty so this this is me, okay. I like to shout about shit that I like, right? So making cassettes is me shouting about shit that I like. Working behind a counter, I'm shouting about stuff that I like. DJing, I'm playing stuff to people. I'm sharing my musical taste. I'm shouting about stuff. Signing records that I like is shouting about. Creating a label, all of them are just extensions of what I like personally. Um, the platforms just got bigger as time, time went on. Um and uh you know, I can't read music, I can't write music. I, I dabbled at being a producer. I always thought my shit sounded terrible when I listened to a David Morales record or a Masters of War record. So I chickened out, I gave up and decided that if I can't make those records, I'm damn well sure gonna share Hang on. What was the first song you remixed under the name Touchdown? Probably I did some early production for Kenny Thomas, who's a blue-eyed soul boy out of the UK. I did some work with Money Love. I did a few things with a diva. I remixed, I remixed the Jodeci record, which shocks the hell out of people when, when I say that. Um, My Heart Belongs to You. Sounds pretty good now. I think I kind of channeled an Isley Brothers record and just kind of like put, layered it underneath some amazing vocals. But, you know, it was still not enough for me. And um, you know, I have imposter syndrome. I, I still probably have imposter syndrome, where it's just like I'm super lucky to have this job. Um, I was super lucky to 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 be able to speak to Todd Terry. I mean, I remember the first time I got a job, and I had to phone up, you know, whoever, and I would sit there at like a nervous wreck. I was speaking to my heroes, um, and I, you know, and when uh, I still feel like that with some people. I still feel like with some people, so uh, so yeah, so, so 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 some early stuff, but it was never, it was never my future.
0: Okay, so what became of your partner in the remix, and who was it that you worked with on that stuff?
1: Okay, so um, one of the first guys I worked with was a guy called Steve McCutcheon. Um, Steve McCutcheon played keyboards for me. He was my engineer. If I needed to sample a record, he would do all of that. Steve McCutcheon wrote Ed Sheeran, Shape of You, the biggest streaming record of all time. He did well. He did really, really, really good. And it just shows that where you start, everyone starts from from small beginnings. And you never know where your journey is going to take you. Everyone's everybody. Everybody starts at zero. Um, and it's how and it's how your life grows and whether you get lucky, and whether the right door opens for you or whether the right person puts their arm around you, gives you guidance. Mentors are super important. I've had some incredible mentors in my life. And, um, you know, I've 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 listened to them and I've learned from them. Uh, I still hold most of them dear. And, um, you know, it's like without them, I wouldn't be uh, I wouldn't have done what I did or who I am. So.
0: at heart you're a soul boy we know that because i remember even you telling me that what would be the top three soul records of all time and if one does not carry the name bobby womack
1: of course, of course. Oh, <laughs> come on of course bobby womack what i mean it's it's um it's don't, an impossible que- it's an impossible question to answer because it depends on your mood it depends what comes into your head um now, I have an, an Arista 7 with Bobby Womack. One side is how can you break my heart. The other side is give it up. I think I actually prefer give it up. He just, he just the way he, he delivers it, it's just like, from, it's from down here. And um, so Bobby Womack for sure, 100%. Um, depends on your de- definition of soul. I mean, um, don't leave me this way. Teddy Pendergrass. I mean, like a record that is actually an anthem today and still gets played on, and people lose their shit because it's just you know everything about it is uh, you know soulful. It's also obviously a disco, early disco record as well. Um, And then, God, who else could you pick? Um, Who else could I pick? I'd I'd say um who can I um Ruby Andrews just loving you right it's an old modern soul northern soul record um and it's a it's a pretty rare collectible seven inch. It's pretty obscure. I don't know why it's just come into my head, but you asked me to pick three and there you are.
0: And you did good. Cool tempo begins for you, okay explain to people your tenure there and what made you go from there on to your
1: next job so my job was to send dj's records and and and, and get dj's to persuade them to play the records and persuade to put them in charts and they would then have to fax their charts to record mirror And if enough DJs charted your record, you go up in the Record Mirror Club chart. And if you got to number one, normally Radio One would look at that chart and go, this record's hot. We're going to consider it for playlist. At least we'll talk about it. That was my job. And um, promoting good records is easy. You put them in a mailer. DJ gets a plays It goes, that's slamming. I'm going to play it this week. And, you know, I want to keep on Cool Tempo's main list. They send me good records. I'm going to chart it for Simon. No problems at all. The problem comes when you have a bad record that you, you that you have to promote. And, you know, not, not every record was great that we worked with. So for me to make it more palatable for other, for DJs to play and easier for me to promote, I'd commission remixes. So I'd commission a Masters at Work re- remix or a Heller and Farley remix or a Paul Oakenfold remix or a Frankie Knuckles mix, Todd Terry, you know, whatever, to try and make it more um easier to program on the dance floor obviously some of those remixes were, were well not obviously but a lot of those remixes were better than the originals and um but that gave me my first kind of slight uh foot in the door in terms of ANR, r just just by remixing records just trying to make a record better than it than it than it was the, the version that i'd been given from the outset um, but then I'd go into a record shop on a Saturday or at the weekend and I'd buy a record and it would come in from America. And I knew that the rights were available uh, for the UK. So I'd then go to my boss, my, the a and man, and I'd go, if you sign this record, I can I, I, I can deliver it. I'll do a great job on it. This, this is DJs are playing it. People are dancing to it. It's got a shot." And I signed two or three records. Elias, Follow Me, River Ocean, um, Love and Happiness uh juliet roberts caught in the middle uh records that did did really well and 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 not not huge crossover successes but definitely crossover successes um and then my boss left he left cool tempo to go and work at a m to start a records um and i got his job so i i i progressed from being a club promotions guy to um to an a guy and um uh what happened was uh, the guy's name was Steve Wolf, and he was one of the mentors that I talk about. He he taught me amazing ethics about how to work within the music industry. But he then got offered the job as head of A and R at MCA Universal, so he left A and M, and um, I, I that was an opportunity for me. I applied for the job, I got the job, I was then running the A and M dance department, club promotions department, and um, and just continued the legacy of. Uh, of ampm records ampm records had already had Cece peniston finally gypsy woman crystal Waters, sounds of blackness the pressure i mean it was the shit as a label um and it was it was they were big shoes to follow and uh but eventually we signed Ultra Naté, 3 or moose T horny or alcatraz give me love did all the remixes on janet jackson's D- design of a decade um album now that's uh uh, no computer on the desk. Look at that. eh? it's, um, it's just one of those things that uh, lots of paper and, um, and yeah. And, and, uh, so we ended up, we ended up, uh, doing pretty well following some, some, uh, some pretty big shoes actually. And, uh, I'm pretty plow- proud of my time there and the records that we signed and the fact that a lot of them, you know, things like love tribe um stand up and and uh, still sound in my opinion still still sounds really good today and you can't download it it's not available it's not available to download it's not available to stream on spotify so i guess that you know the the classics i mean Nesby the moose T remix of can i get a witness incredible incredible record still sounds amazing so yeah you know wolfie's a
0: character <laughs> And God bless Wolfie because he did mentor a lot of us in in that early part of house music, especially, you know, he was, he had the fortitude to pick up a lot of records when this thing was just beginning. So you were already coming in off a strong, um, let's see, like he left a pretty strong legacy, A.M.P.M. How long were you there before you
1: rolled over to your current situation? Um, I was there for four years, and um, uh, it was you know I learned I learned a lot being responsible for for budgets and 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 uh, you know marketing campaigns and uh, profit and loss force P and L forecast profit and loss forecasts and whatever you know if your record did well everybody loved you if your record didn't do so well you you know you got kicked in the ass and 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 whatever and you know some of the things that were not so successful was because some people possibly didn't deliver. They were beyond your control, but you still had you still had the responsibility, not only t- internally to the record label, but also to the artist and to the manager. Um, but what it did do, that five years at Cool Tempo and the four years at uh, A&M, it, I got to know a lot of people. I got to know a lot of DJs. I got to know a lot of producers. I got to know a lot of labels. Um, I had really great relationships pretty much across the board, and it was part of my job, so somebody else was paying for it. I mean, if you start an independent label cold from the get go and you're starting from ground zero, that's a pretty tough proposition. And and and, and I don't envy, in fact, I, anyone that's managed to make that work is 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 uh ama- amazingly tenacious and talented and 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 uh and just total focus to make that work because it's definitely not easy uh, and i grew in in all of those areas on somebody else's his money um, but what happened was universal bought polygram polygram owned AM, and they merged a&m with ireland and and i i didn't really want to go and work for uh, ireland and uh, at the same time ministry of sound offered me some startup money to start my own label they wanted access to repertoire for their compilations um so they offered me some money to start my own label and um it was just the right moment in time um it was uh, uh I, it was kind of risky and reckless and and just definitely pumped me full of adrenaline because you know if 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 i failed i failed on my terms if i succeeded i, I succeeded on my terms but there was nowhere to hide you couldn't go and hide where the company's doing well because Sting's having a hit or Sheryl Crow's having a hit or whatever. And I'll just, I'll just, you know, free wheel for a little bit of time. You had to be on your toes the whole time. And, um, and also I just started a family at that. Uh, the year I started defected is the year that my, my first uh, son was born. So there, there was that pressure as well. So I was, I was definitely hunter gatherer at that moment. I had to go out and, and, uh, and, and kill to eat because i had i had to support myself and i had to support my family it made me uh really focused it really focused me
0: and defected story begins of course and i remember those stories right in the beginning beginning because i was right there as it as it unfolded um and also like you said tenacity you had to be the warrior and you couldn't hide behind anybody and say oh who did you take with you with when you started the, the company from A&M? Who was part of the staff that came along?
1: Um, Janet Bell uh, came, came with me. And, um, and then we hired a, a receptionist uh, PA to answer the phone. And there was just three of us. We, we quickly hired uh, a club promotions person um, and uh we we uh we wanted to be close to the action so one of the things that we did uh, black market records was one of the biggest uh, import record stores uh in london at that time and if you were a dj you probably went there on a friday or a saturday and if you were a dj from out of town coming in from new york to play ministry of sound or whatever you would go to black market as well so we uh hired an office directly opposite black market we literally could look out of our window in almost onto the decks and see what they were playing uh, it was that close and so when a dj went into black market they literally just walked across the street and um and we gave them our promos we gave them our latest releases and we not just gave it to them. we said this is why you need to play this. This is why you need to support this. This is hot. I've only given it to five people. Even if you're giving it to 50, you still told them you've given it to five. And they thought they were special. And you had that. That dialogue with people and that connectivity with people that, that that made it real special, and even if they didn't walk over the, the the road, we could see them in the shop and we'd walk over the road and we'd give them we'd give them a promo. We'd also we had access to the imports that were coming in, so we would literally be hearing records as they came off the van and were being racked behind the counter, um, and so we knew what, who what remixes were hot, what DJs were asking for. Um, and and whatever it just it, we we just had our finger right on the pulse by being opposite black market
0: what was the first initial record you came out with to start defected
1: soul searcher um i we'd signed records from from Jazz and groove and brian tapper and mark pomeroy uh when we were a and we signed a record from strictly monet we can make it which is is an incredible soulful record but the dub just had this elongated kind of fed back looped vocal which just just tore clubs apart and I had a really good relationship with them and we'd signed um, michael poctor records and 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 uh and whatever and um they 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 put out an import um soul searcher can't get enough which was just it was a, a gary's gang sample and um it was a it was a track it didn't have the full song but it was doing business on the dance floors, and a lot of the specialist radio shows were playing it at the weekend on Kiss. Trouble was playing it. Bobby and Steve were playing it. Norman Jay was playing it. So you knew that the record had heat. And I, I, I found out and I said, "Look, I want this record to be the first release, but can you put a song on it?" And uh, Mark Pomeroy went went away, and he um, he sang the song that he wrote to me over the phone, and I loved it. I was like that's it it's so good lyrics were so good and then they got Thea Austin to um, to sing it and and Thea was the the the, the singer from Snap um, who had you know sang Rhythm is a Dancer and whatever so she you know so she had pedigree she sang on the record and um, and we put it out and it it came it was a hit off the bat sold 100,000 records top 10 in the UK pop chart and it was um, it was a it, when I, when I left M and started my own label it was really funny because the f- people didn't necessarily pick up the phone pick up the phone anymore. I didn't have R budgets, you know I, I didn't ha- I didn't have you know couldn't sign records for a lot of money, pay a lot of people for remixes and whatever and, and some people that were were I thought to be friends, a big lesson in the music industry eh? they were just like well you've got to prove yourself again And then when we proved ourselves again by having a top 10 record, everyone picked up the phone again. So it, it solved uh, a, a multitude of, of conundrums about um, starting starting your phone business. And also we had a lot of goodwill. People knew that a had been had been disbanded and that we'd probably been given a bit of a rough ride uh, and people wanted to support us. So, you know, the press supported us, specialist radio supported us and we created enough of a buzz to give us a platform to take that record to mainstream radio And we, and we got the love that I think that the record deserved.
0: Simon, how long did you last with ministry as your backer?
1: We lasted about three years, um, it was a it was a it was a an interesting relationship i mean they they were our partners and the competition at the same time I mean they were signing records we were signing records sometimes we would go for the same records I'd bid ten thousand pounds for a record they'd bid fifty and I couldn't compete with that so um so we ended up butting heads a little bit but what happened was I wanted to sign kings of tomorrow finally and it was a record that i heard played at the winter music conference a t- uh, conference and tony Humphreys was was championing it. and you, you know it's an amazing song it just you know you could you, you, you know you got got it you know, back in the day 2001 2002 you know you got emotional listening to that record anyway uh, the people that owned it distance records they they wanted a lot of money and I loved the record so much. I paid way, way more. I wanted to pay way, way more than I could afford. But I just felt it was a seminal record. And Ministry came to me because they were they were backing me financially. And they said, you can't pay this much money for that record. It's a deep house record. It's not a hit. And I'm like, yeah, but culturally, it's an amazing record. It's a call to arms for the whole scene. And every DJ that I want to be supporting, defected, is playing this record and that's important in if you're going to have longevity as a label they didn't see it that way we ended up falling out um and uh i eventually signed the record i you know i guess history says i was right because it was uh you know it's a record that still gets played today still sounds amazing today it's probably the 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 record that i've probably heard most in my life in terms of repeat plays or whatever and i'm still not tired of listening to it um but it was such a, a a difference of um of opinions they wanted hits i wanted culture um and um we parted company i owed them a heap load of money we came to an arrangement i paid them back i think it took me almost a decade to pay them back um what they lent me but we did pay them back um, and because of that, Defected became my my own my own company, my own business.
0: Everybody's wondering why my transitions are kind of sloppy. It's because I'm having an echo issue, and I have to mute him. And it doesn't. It's like maybe I'm speechless. No, I just want to make sure we don't have this echo. So, you know, when you you know, you're dealing with that checkbook that you had before with ministry. And now that checkbook is not there any longer. Is it still easy for you to still make those maneuvers or do you have to really think thoroughly about every move you're making as an owner of that label?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you know, one, one thing that, um, yeah, you have to think about everything, you know, I mean, I lots of successful businesses go under because, because of cash flow they may you know their business may be sound or well, they just run out of money and they you know and whatever and, and you know i felt when i left AM that i knew how to run a record label and that may be true i may you know but i didn't know how to run a business and the moment we opened our doors was the most it, it was a learning curve beyond anything i've ever experienced and there's you know people make mistakes And and that's fine. That's acceptable practice. Whatever you do, but just don't make the same mistake twice. That's unforgivable. So learn from everything that's around you. Learn from your successes and why they're successful and whatever. But learn equally from your, your mistakes Um, And just you you need to just put together a picture. I mean, I was very fortunate to work with. We talked about mentors. I worked at a major label, so I I understood the way that they operated and the good things that they they did in terms of promotion and marketing, etc. I also worked with Strictly Rhythm quite extensively. And Mark Finkelstein taught me how to run a business as an, an independent label. And, you know, without his guidance, you know, I, I think we would have gone, gone out of business. I also worked with the Ministry of Sound, who were amazing at marketing back in, the, in, in, in those days. Um, you know, they would do stuff like shine a, their image on the, the side of the Houses of Parliament or Buckingham Palace, and it would be in the newspaper the next day. And, and um, you know, the, these were the days when, when those things had, had a meaningful effect. So I learned the major Labour way. I learned... The independent way I learned, the marketing way I learned about uh, the finances of, of, you know, doing compilations alongside putting out singles, and um, and then um, when radio decided that it wanted to just play hits, wanted to play music from big artists, and wanted and stop supporting dance music, and start uh, and stop supporting independent labels, I learned how to put on events and go on the road. And, and promote my music in a completely different way just out of necessity if we didn't go on the road and we weren't getting our records played on the radio how were people going to hear our records how were we going to connect with our audience so you know Marillo had started subliminal sessions and I was like defective in the house we we're in a club near you and we started the compilation series um and the uh and the events as well but it was because i was surrounded what by different scenarios within the business and i just i just soaked it all up and and learned from it and applied it to um our business as and when it was needed um but yeah it was uh it um, we couldn't compete with the majors they've they've always got more money than us so we have to be cre- creative and um, supporting the culture is more important than support, and, and this is going to fast track us maybe into social media. Now, now it's all about numbers. It's all about well,
0: how. Well, well,
1: we, you know, back then for me, it's all about the culture. It's all about longevity. It's all about, you know, having a community and treating that community well, and and you know. Chance was big. I didn't sign trance records. EDM was big. I didn't sign EDM records. Drum and bass was big. I didn't sign drum and bass records because I wanted my community of DJs and record store people and punters and club goers to feel that what they were into was important to me. And I just didn't go off in a different direction for the money.
0: And that's why I was going to ask you, why didn't you sign when it was that easy to go and grab an edm record or a jungle record why stay true to the champion this house music dick
1: because because i didn't i didn't understand them i didn't like them they didn't they didn't make me feel tight in my stomach because i fucking loved them and I, I remember listening to the Beatport Top Five when EDM was just exploding. And, and, and I was with my ANR team. And I just looked at them and went, This is fucking horrible. I just, I just can't go there. It's it, it stops being your passion and then becomes a job. And that's always a dangerous thing. And I just went, if we're gonna die, let's at least die standing for something. Let's put our flag in the ground and say, This is what we represent and that, and this is what we mean. And it's not about being popular globally it's about reaching the people that are, are aligned with you and the, the internet was a great thing for that because we could connect with people globally and i don't know what the, the house music community w- it was in terms of numbers in in 2011 whether it was 500,000 people whether it was a million or 2 million it's just we wanted to be meaningful to those people and that's a pretty good audience you know Um, And we realigned our business to to appeal to those people. We made cutbacks. Hard decisions were made. Tough conversations with employees or tough conversations with uh, uh, artists that you can't afford to pay them as much as what they think they deserve. But stick with us. It's a moment in time. We'll get through this together. You know, when you don't have money, speak uh, hard conversations with suppliers. I can't pay you now. Just please work with me. If I go out of business, you're not going to get paid, so you're no worse off. Just just stick with me. Eventually, I you know I, I I I I'll I'll pay you. But uh, um, those things come along and they challenge you. And if you're clever, you can learn you can learn a lot from them. Um, it's easy to operate when everything's going well. Um, it's it's actually. When I look back at it and, and and surviving when a lot of our competitors went out of business is probably something that I'm actually most proud of. So here's a
0: here's a question that it just came to my mind. Do you are you sorry to see the physicals go away and this digital streaming become the the next move? Move? Uh
1: in some ways, in some ways. I think that um, there was a level of curation and, and, and a le- level of uh, investment involved with putting out a physical record that people don't have to take that chance now. So it makes them f- it far easier to put a record out. You know, back in the day, you would have to press some vinyl, you'd have to cut some lacquers, uh, you'd have to go to a mastering studio, you'd have to do some test pressings. All of these things cost you money. Then you'd have to press 1,000, 5,000, whatever records, all of which was an investment. And you didn't know if you were going to get your your money back. So let's just say the figure to put a record out back in the day was 10,000 pounds. You'd think about you think pretty hard about sending spending £10,000. Now, people don't have to think about anything. They just fucking upload it. And even if it's a piece of shit, it doesn't matter. But it's just noise that's out there. I mean, someone told me today there's 90,000 releases a day in maybe a week, but I'm sure they said a day on Spotify. That's a lot of shit to wade through to get your record heard. And the reason the reason that there's that much music is because there's no risk involved. Whereas back in the day, you know, even if you pressed your record, then the distributor would hear it and he would have to go. I'm not buying that. That's a terrible record. I'm not going to ship it. I don't believe in it. And then the person behind a record store and then the DJ. And, and there was like several layers of curation which don't exist anymore. And I think that's probably missed to some extent. Um, but at the same time, everyone deserves a chance. Everybody deserves an opportunity. Who am I to say someone's record is a good or a bad record? And whatever? I can only say what I like personally. There are lots of records that do really well that I just think, how the fuck? What the fuck? But, they, but, they, they, but they're popular with other people. So I think that the, the, the fact that everyone had a chance is a good thing, but maybe it's a little bit too easy. And I think there's probably somewhere in the middle would probably sit, sit better with me personally.
0: Well, that's what happened with the changeover as well. The bedroom DJ became his own AR person. I believe in my heart, and a lot of the older folks or the ones that know the difference between the old business to the new business feel that quality control went away. Guys like yourself would be the quality control. So you would hear a record per se, like we would send things in early myself, including other producers too. And he'll go back and say, I like that, but can you change this and that? And I think. That's missing with today's situation,
1: yeah. It, for, for me, it's a little deeper than that. So, everybody wants to be a DJ, right? It's just like it's exploded before that. Again, there was a big financial commitment to being a DJ. You'd have to buy equipment, you'd have to, um, you have to buy the music, you'd have to go to the store to buy the music. Time, a time commitment, a monetary commitment um and, and and everything so um uh, but now everyone you know technology's made it easy for people to be a dj and everybody wants to be a dj celebrities you know like tastemakers specialist djs mainstream djs and whatever there's a lot of djs in the world um which which actually i think is in the main is a positive thing the more people that play great music the, the better for everyone but the thing is i don't think more people are playing great music because what happens now is everybody thinks the, the the road to being popular is to make a record that is a hit in some way, shape or form. So lots of people are making records on their laptops, which really and truly are not amazing. Your job as a DJ is to play the best, mu- in my opinion, is to play the best music available to you Um and 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 make sure your dance floor gets to hear the best music that you you that that's at the end of your fingertips. But when you're playing your own records that aren't very good and that are underproduced and not masters and don't have great lyrical content, no musicality or what whatsoever, um, and you're playing them relentlessly, one after the other after the other, that means the dilution of of of, of music that's being played on the dance floor. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And I think people are pretty much acknowledging that, that that's what's happened. You know, if you if you if you dilute Orange Squash and keep diluting it and keep diluting it, eventually it becomes water. And I think what we have is just DJs playing water now instead of playing the best that's possibly available to them because they think it's that it's their chance to success. And um you know, if you're if your masters at work or your purple disco machine or your um, follow more or whatever, and your productions are really good, feel free to play your records because they're at a level. But a lot of DJs are playing records that are not even close to being at the level that needs to be leaving the speakers, in my opinion. And, um, you know, because it's not about being a great DJ anymore. It's about being popular. It's about dancing behind the decks it's i mean you know some djs could dance well behind the decks others can't but i see djs that don't dance behind the decks being ridiculed because they look like they're boring but maybe they're playing great music and surely that's fucking good enough for some people but the, the world is today when a crowd only goes crazy because the dry ice cannon is going mad or there's a, a confetti cannon blast and that's the highlight of their reason um that's just not how i started out and uh i kind of think that uh, uh you know traditions need to start old school traditions and old school values need to start being more important rather than just being popular or famous um that's the way i feel about it at the moment
0: thank god for that in your heart who is your greatest dj of all time
1: Oh, I could never answer that. I know too many people. Um, come on. Come on. I can't, there's, there's, there, there, again, it just depends on my mood. I mean, I regularly say that that Louis Vega is my favorite DJ because. Because he can play anything from from forty fives to Latin to house to techno to uh I was going I was. He played for us at Ministry of Sound at a glitterbox night, and it got to three o'clock in the morning. He he he'd been on for an hour, and I was gonna go home. I, I I'd done my bit. The night it was rocking. I felt I could go home. I stood and watched him for two hours, going, "How is he? How is he putting that music together?" He was finding bits of records in the middle, on the fly, looping them, bringing other records in, going back to the record. It was. It was. It was like. He, he was he was like a maestro. But, you know, I I have respect for Giles Peterson because he digs and he's introduced great music to people for four decades. Uh, someone like Osun Lade, again, he plays across the board. Um, I love watching Natasha digs because he, going back to people dancing behind the decks, she looks amazing behind the decks, but her selection is on point. Um, and, um, and again, she can play um latin funk soul house disco and 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 you know uh, with style um but i mean oh my god i've probably upset loads of honey dijon energy 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 relentlessly promotes culture doesn't just talk about herself um she talk about some art that she loves or some fashion that she loves or a chicago classic that she played back in the day she supports the culture of dance music in a w- in, in in the way that it should be supported um good god i mean where do you start where do you stop um yeah. but though you know that's just a, a small example
0: okay so here's the other question wait, wait wait hey here's the other question so we said favorite dj's favorite all time producers of all time Bye.
1: gambler Huff, Tom Moulton, Masters at Work, David Mirage, Frankie Knuckles, um, uh so many people. Um I always I, I you know um, Steve Hurley East move. I mean, I look back at my ID Steve Hurley, East move Morris Joshua era, and it's just you know Donald Rush stuff. It's just amazing. Cece Peniston fight. It's just like you know Todd Terry. Um, I just think about Roger Sanchez. I mean, definitely the American side of things are is definitely where I felt people could bring the great elements of of music that I love and 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 and, and marry it with house music, whether that be disco. You know uh soul uh you know a great soul s- sample a great disco sample i mean house music always borrowed from other genres it's always evolved it's always been a comedian um yeah uh it, i always feel awkward when i'm put on the spot my favorite because uh um there's just so much 40 40 years of listening to great music it's impossible to pinpoint anyone or any you know or anything
0: I know, I know, I'm terrible. (laughs) But, but, you know, this is something that I just wanted to ask and probably others, you know, asking at home the same question. So let me put this out there in the best way I can. Why did you tend to lend yourself more to the American house sound than the UK people? I'm not going to say it it wasn't a 50-50, but you championed you came across the ocean you picked up great records and you brought them back home and you were able to cross them into those charts why why not do it with some of, more of the uk people and just you know like a lot of the uk a and r guys would do
1: there was um you know there were uk acts and uk labels that, 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 that I, you know that i worked with where it be you know uh, Ashley beadle Heller and farley uh, junior you know the junior boys own crew uh, express 2 um etc but there's something about a mystique of someone that's not from your hometown and also i think that you know it was it was um the way that records were produced in those studios with with great musicians and you know it was like you know kenny and louis had a team behind them. roger had great keyboard players behind him um you know and and and, and it just allowed them to the the, rec- the productions and the records were a little more for me a little bit more soulful um and uh, a little bit a, a little bit more well produced um you know and, and um and i think that comes from the you know the the prelude days or the south Soul days or the philly international days and um and 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 that's just that's just deep within a lot of people that reside on that side of the pond and i, I could just relate to it a little bit more it's a nuance that uh is really difficult to ar- articulate and that you know and and it wasn't because i didn't value or respect uh, people that were closer to home and you know i mean one of my favorite records is 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 t carino um mike pickering produced it and 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 i loved all the early M people stuff and and stuff like that and it was um um it's just i think uh I just loved what came out of the U S and particularly New York and Chicago more.
0: And I must say, thank you for signing my records too. Thank you again. <laughs> and of course, Gladys Pizarro strictly in the Strictly family. And, you know, we couldn't have done it without a great UK partnership like you provided because you had the same insight, what you believe in, what we believed in making great records and delivering a great record to the end.
1: But, just just sorry just think about it it's you know i'm a soul boy and most most great soul records were made in the states and there was a great soul you know like soul to soul and loose ends and there were some great soul records made you know free southern freeze and you know links Your line it there was some you know light of the world there's some amazing soul and funk records made in the uk but the vast majority came out of the states and and i don't and i think that legacy kind of Moved forward into into house music, so so for me it's it's uh, the lineage is is clear as far as I'm concerned. So um you know, and I and I remember listening to Powerhouse, and you know Dwayne Harden had just had a big record on uh with Armand and whatever. So for me, it, that record was a no brainer. So
0: no, once again, uh, once, once again, a- and actually we're coming on in the twenty fifth year next year. Twenty five years already. It's it's hard to believe that and. I'm gonna unmute you, but I wanted to make this next part getting through the bridge of not only having a record label, like you said, what's the next thing defected in the house, and how that progresses into social media? Can you explain that 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 change and what that was like as a record label owner?
1: So, Napster came along, yeah. The internet came along and it just it 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 just changed everything so you know Napster came along we were all aware of it dance music community early adopters of technology so we knew that people were file sharing and and they and they were they were buying uh uh physical records less and we we saw it on our um you know you, you know yesterday i actually watched a documentary about tower records and the documentary is called all things must pass and when you're that big, sometimes you don't notice the change. It just it just happens. But you're so big, you can't react to it. But when you're small and you look in every week at your income and every month and, and, and you notice when things start to drop off and if you don't do anything about it, you're just going to get caught out and eventually you're going to suffer. And, and, and most people ended up dying. But I noticed the change and the downturn. And we sat in a marketing meeting and we talked about all the things that we used to do. We talked about doing ads on Kiss FM or taking out pages in MixMag and putting street posters up and, and the cost associated with all of that. And the cost associated with it didn't meet with the drop in sales. We, we were going to lose money on every record. And, and I said to my team, right, we can't, we're not doing any of this. We can't do it. It's it's going to be prehistoric. It's going to drag us down. We're going to take all of that money that we would have invested in traditional marketing and we're going to invest it online and we're going to grow our community and we're going to do things, videos or, or, or programs or clips or whatever, that when we put them online, they're going to be global and they're going to be up there 24-7 and they're going to be up there forever rather than, than something... You put a street poster up, it comes down the next week, it's covered over by something else. And then you're, you're hoping that someone's going to walk past it and stop and actually take notice of it. Most times they wouldn't stop, but most times they wouldn't even walk past it. It was so random. And yet the internet seemed to give you more opportunity. So we stopped all the traditional marketing and we went online. Um, and my, my team looked at me like I was nuts that i'd lost my mind this is like how are we gonna and i was like look i get it we might go two steps backwards even three steps backwards so that we can move forward in 12 months time and that's exactly what happened and we invested all of our money on time and we grew our community so you know initially it was probably message boards and myspace and uh you know uh and 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 whatever but you know eventually it became twitter and instagram and at the same time tracks started and beatport started and so everybody was everybody was going digital and we just spotted it really early um and it was it was uh, it was a uh, saving grace did you have an inside marketing team
0: or you hired someone on the outside to help you with this campaign okay.
1: We did everything internally. I I mean, you know, I I, I get that some people, we we had a team. I'm a control freak. I have OCD, right? I like to be able to speak to someone when I speak to them. I like to be able to look them in the eye. When when things are going well, I like to say, well done. When things are going badly, I like to say, what the fuck? Why is it going badly? Have we dropped the ball here? Is it beyond our control or whatever? But I just need that kind of directness, which, you know, uh, and um, so we, you know, we would event we would initially try to take care of things ourselves until it became too much, and then we would hire someone because we needed someone dedicated to do that role. So it was a constant learning process, it was a constant evolution and it was constant growth. And then if things didn't react, we would pull back. If things reacted, we'd 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 invest more in that, whether that be personnel or bigger budgets, or you know, to get more reach, etc. It was an interesting time. It was the, you know, it was like you went from a traditional way of doing stuff. We talked about you know being on the phone and faxes and, uh, and and reading magazines. And if you read a magazine and you read a review of a record in a magazine, it was probably two months old by the time you got to read that review. The great thing about the internet, it was probably two days old by the time you got to it. So everything was so much more fast moving and instant. And if you read the reactions. You know, if if the record didn't get a great reaction, you just moved away from it really quickly. If the the record got a great reaction, you just put more and more behind it. So you could run your business way, way more efficiently. But, of course, you had to make the transition. The transitions of everything were always the most difficult periods in time to navigate. But once you got there and you were there early, um, life was great. First massive hit in this new transition with this streaming for you guys, guys. Nice. Um, oh, definition of a hit underground hit, club hit. Um, well, give me a couple club hit first, of course, and then you crossover. Downloads, downloads first, right? Downloads first. Um, Love Generation, Bob Sinclair. You know, that was a record that we pushed really hard as a, in the download charts. And and uh, the crazy thing about it was the stores would, would only stock top 20 records. And then when the record was at number 38, you couldn't buy it in a store, but you could download it. So, you know, people would leave their offices or their homes or whatever. They would go to a store and they couldn't fucking buy the record because the store didn't have it in stock. Or they could sit on the end of their laptop. And they could just download it and not have to have the, make make the effort. So it became really obvious that downloads eventually were going to replace uh, people going to record stores. Unfortunately, and I, and and I think that the thing that I feel most that I miss about record stores is the guy behind the counter and the other DJs that were in there. The community aspect of a record store, um, but you know, it's it's limited by the the shelf space that they have. And the appetite for music is so broad in these times that online was able to to fulfill that demand in a way that a a physical store couldn't. Um, So Bob Sinclair, Love Generation, and then World World Hold On um, were our first biggest download hits. Um, Streaming, uh, Camel Fat, Cola, globally, massive, massive streaming record.
0: Simon, did you do Cola with a partner, or that was all done with yourself, the streaming and everything?
1: No, that was the first record that we decided at Defected that we were not going to license it and look for partners internationally around the world. So everyone that bought that record bought it on Defected Records, Um, and that actually... Was a real reason why the 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 brand exploded in that time because it wasn't on energy in Italy or happy in France or ultra in America, whatever. Every DJ that played that record played it on defective records, and after that record, we never licensed any records internationally. That was our template.
0: Ah, so the template changed at that point.
1: Yeah, because it's you know it's it's Spotify. Sometimes we, we licensed records because we needed the cash flow, and that was an important factor in our survival. But when streaming started to kick in and we started to see the benefits of the revenue for that, we were a little bit more comfortable in terms of the cash position. We didn't feel we needed to get those advances from the label, so we took the chance of, of doing it ourselves. And, you know, you get once you get past the advance, you're receiving that money directly and, and and immediately, you're not waiting six months to be accounted to and whatever. So the cash flow position actually improves. Uh, this may be a little bit kind of like, biz, you know, too, too business-like for people. But the advantage of c- receiving money directly uh, far outweigh, outweighed going uh, receiving it through a third party. So, um, so it changed the game for us. I don't think people license records in, in these times now uh spotify is a global organization and and you know if someone listens to your record in in australia or or argentina or 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 botswana or whatever then you get paid directly and it's it's been amazing for the music industry
0: well the difference is now from the old days is is that it's worldwide so you have a record that's a massive hit you can distribute it yourself through the through the um do spotify and you don't have to have regional deals or continent deals now you're able to do it one shot but you were lucky to be able to do be able to do that
1: sure and you promote and you know you because your globe is brand you know instagram is global social media is global and whatever so everything aligns pretty well so you know genres of music are, uh, are popular in different you know different uh, different uh areas so, so you know techno is obviously more popular in eastern europe and germany and whatever and house struggles a little bit but house is really popular in italy and australia and, and America. so it is regional to a, to a certain extent but once you upload a file it's there globally 24 7 you know so the, the the business has changed beyond recognition and the thing that i said to you earlier that was something that i'm i'm most proud of is that we changed with it fast enough to survive. Um, And, you know, being, uh, being around for 25 years at some point has meaning and has value.
0: I want to give you some kudos. I'm going to use this so that you can see where I'm going to go with this. Robert Stigwood, RSO Records. And I always say this, it took an Englishman to come to America to make disco explode through a movie. (laughs) what the hell made you create glitterbox what was the whole process, the process
1: um so i'm sitting in Ibiza um it's the height of the edm period and techno is is super popular and i have a number of people call me i'm coming to Ibiza this weekend where can i go where can we go out and i i i every week i was struggling to give people a recommendation that I thought was relevant to them or that they would enjoy and whatever. And at the same time, I was coming out every weekend, coming out on a Thursday night, leaving on a Monday, and I would see the same people on the flight, in the lounge, on the flight, whatever. So I could see there was a shift in people coming to Ibiza. They were coming. It's super expensive in Ibiza. So they weren't coming for a week or two weeks because it would it would cripple them financially. They were coming for a weekend. They were just coming for for a quick blast. And then they would go back home and whatever. So I thought there's a market, And these people were normally a little bit older. I thought there's a market here. There's a market for people that are coming to Ibiza to reminisce. They don't want to go to a techno night. They don't want to go to an EDM night. They kind of want to listen to the music that made them come to Ibiza back in the day. So um, I persuaded uh, uh, the guy that owned um, Boom at the time that there was this gap in the market. And I based it on my experience of, of when I first come to Ibifu. Classic records, classic DJs, um, lots of dancers, not necessarily about everybody facing the DJ. Uh, and when we opened, it was, a, it was honestly, quite honestly, it was a disaster. We, we, you know, the floor was empty. People didn't really understand it. Um, but, you know, as with a lot of things, it takes people a little while to catch on. And the people that generally went had enjoyed the music, enjoyed the um, the production that we put on with the dancers, et cetera. Uh, and we we got some really good assets um, for social media, Instagram, some some great looking people, some fashionable people. We booked some great DJs and we just kept posting about it online um and um so it was just the fact that there was a a, an audience and a gap in the market that just wasn't being catered for and i was just lucky enough to to spot it and and i missed that as well i missed people weren't playing classics and that kind of like that disco sensibility of of, of people having fun and dressing up and you know making a real effort to go out and you go to a techno night everyone's wearing black everyone looks the same it's kind of boring yeah but i wanted you know girls to look great and guys to look great and for, for, for gay people to feel comfortable come in and, and just to, to bring that whole kind of um uh mixture of hedonism back to the dance floor um yeah we made it bright we made it colorful we, we made it a fun night for people to go to and it really resonated and and people it wasn't about us telling Everyone, what a great night it was. We tried to make sure that the people on the dance floor told their friends that there was this night in Ibiza that was slightly different to everything else that was going on. And if you're going to come to Ibiza, we talk about community, um, make sure you go to this night. And it, it just grew in popularity.
0: So, I mean, there's people. Do they realize what goes into this, you know, behind the scenes? Do they really think, you know, they see the success now, the glitter box is hot, it's all over the place, but they have no idea the financial situation of you having to be invested into this. What does it take to, you know, what kind of financial financial investment about? about?
1: We lost money for five years, the glitter box. You know, it, first of all, you lose money. Then you start to make a little bit of money, but you're just you're just basically recouping the money that you invested initially. Um, And it took five years for that to be a profitable brand business, whatever you whatever you want to call it night. Um, And um, yeah, but you have to stick with it if you believe in something. And that's the trouble with the major labels now and a lot of people now, if it's not successful straight away people people walk away from things far too quickly it takes the public a, a moment to catch on for, for them to understand your vision and what you're trying to get across so you have you have to you if you've got convention with it i mean my my promotions girl on the first night of of, of glitterbox, she resigned she thought it was so terrible that she didn't want to be associated with it and um but, you know, it, it would have been easy for the owner to, to to walk away as well. But we were lucky we had defected at the same club and he didn't want to upset me. So he stood with us. And by the end of the season, the numbers grew from 400 to 1200. And it was a good night. And and, and it made sense then. Um, but it took 20, you know, 16 nights that season for people on the island to, to try and understand it. That's why
0: I asked you the question because everybody sees the success and glory. Glory.
1: I'm probably gonna get I'm probably gonna get this wrong, right? Because I'm probably gonna get the wrong title. But I think when Larry Levan played Tonya Gardner heartbeat first time at the Paradise Garage, he cleared the floor. People didn't understand it, right? But he played it like six times that night, and by the end of the night, everybody understood it. And I think it was the same with Glitterbox. We I just had, just fucking was like. This is going to fucking work. And I believed in it so much. Um, and and I was able to do it. So, you know, lucky me. That's
0: why I try to tell people. that It's not just about money. There's passion involved too. You have to have a burning passion for success. Otherwise, if you're doing it only for money, most of the time it can fail. And you'll hear that. But when you hear someone has a lot of heart and passion invested into something, then you see those kind of results.
1: I mean, you know, not always, but if you do it for the culture, you can't, you know, you can't lose because you either get, you get your credibility and people, people value the fact that you've, you've done things for the culture, but normally the money, the money comes, it may come further down the line, but if you just do it for the money, there's no fucking soul in it. And that's, you know, um, look, look, don't get me wrong. I defected before i sold it we employed 50 people i we had to generate enough income for me to pay my artists my staff the overhead it was it was it was a commitment and so we had to we had to do things that were commercially minded but we also did things that were culturally minded as well it was about having the balance
0: tell us about what happens Glitterbox is really going strong and covid comes what's the change for you as far as business model and everything else because i remember reading about you writing stuff along the way that you were uncertain if this was going to be positive in the end when we came out on the other side
1: side um lots of things lots of things are uh, um Fat, many factors in, in 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 me deciding to sell the business i mean it was it was the thing we, we talked about a few of them the way people are making music the people the way people are djing these days uh, it, it's just i come from a different era i don't want to be the old guy sitting in the corner fucking moaning about everything life's too short for all of that and who am i to say whether it's right wrong or whatever it's just not what aligns with me personally and whatever but I just didn't want to I just didn't want to go through life complaining um, so it was already in my mind that I needed an exit strategy and um, and then covid come along and that changed so much it, it you know it's I believe in people coming together and being together and that's just not on the dance floor I believe in people being together in in in, in the office I believe that you know, New employees and young employees can teach the older members of staff and the older of staff can give newer employees the benefit of their uh, their experience and their nuances and, and, and things that they've learned over the years. And you certainly can't do that working from home. So I think that, you know, um, what I think the work from home policy is is going to uh, eventually lead us to in the UK is a whole lot of average people. are not inspired by sitting next to someone who's a great designer or someone who's a great marketer or someone that's a great producer you know studios You can't, well, people do work from home making music. They make it on their laptops. And I I think music suffers from that. I think music suffers because people aren't in the studio together and a keyboard and player and a guitar player and a bass player aren't jamming with each other and that and and taking a musical competition to a place that, uh, 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 that a producer never thought it would get to because you're not in the room together. People need to be in the room together because, you know, people elevate their abilities. By being next to someone that's talented and creative and stuff, um, and so you know when, when we was when we had COVID ended and the work from home uh, finished, and, and and some of my staff came back in and were grateful, and some of my staff were just like, "What's your work from home policy? I only want to come in two days a week." And da, 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 da. and I was just like, "You know what? It's time for me to just bow out gracefully because I can't sit here telling someone." You've got the fucking greatest job in the world. You work in the music industry and, you know, any one day an artist could walk through the door or a singer could walk through the door. And, you know, you're supposed to be fans of those people and you get the chance to be close to inspirational people, but you don't want to be here. I don't understand that. And um, so, you know, like when I decided I couldn't be a great producer, I just decided that i just wanted to just i had the best time within the music industry during the best eras in my opinion and i just didn't want that opinion to be tainted by the way that everything was going so i cut it
0: you know yeah, well, I, yeah. I get it along the way and i've got to ask you this before being in the helm as the owner and director as all did and I know you're big into family. Did your family suffer at all with your amount of hours that you had to put in?
1: Sure. I mean, I've, I've talked about it. I feel like I have a time debt to my family and my kids. My, my boys want to be DJs. They want to run record labels. I'm trying to teach them the right way. I have time to do that. Now, if I still run the label, I wouldn't have the time. My daughter is a little bit of an entrepreneur and she quietly gets on with stuff. And uh, she had a couple of business. She had a, a business called Dunmore designs where she made, clothes for people she didn't make any money but at least she learned about commerce uh, and manufacturing and and you know uh, she didn't lose money she didn't make she she also had a business called fixing kicks where she would clean people's kicks for them. it was a mail or people would mail her their sneakers so she could clean them and she would mail them back and she paid people for it and i thought that was you know that that secretly inside me that was me hustling back in the day she was like 18 19 years old when she was doing this and whatever and uh, i want to be there for them i want to be there for for, for for my wife you know she brought my kids up really well um and, and 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 stuff so that's another part of uh why i felt it was time to to give up because i can now help my kids um in in in, in ways that, that are really important to them you know louis got his son label um and i'm trying to teach him about you know the reasons for signing a record, not because you're going to make lots of money, because it's it's musically and culturally really, really important to you. Um, and um, you know, and then DJing and whatever. And that, you know, they look at the world in a similar way to what I do. And 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 you know, and they and they, you know, they, I asked them to do certain things, and they go, yeah, but I don't want to do that because Jamie Jones doesn't do it or Michael Beebe doesn't do it. And I'm like, that's the reason you should do it. You need to be. You need to plow your own field. You know, culturally, people need to know what you stand for. Tell people about the music that you love. Do charts. Post about records that you love on your Instagram account and whatever. They're still super young. They're still learning. And I won't give up until and, 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 until they, are, they get to where they want to get to.
0: Simon, what was the withdrawal process for you <laughs> like? You know, you've been going and going. What's that withdrawal like? And are you ever going to step back in again or you're done
1: um it's radical you go from getting you know 100 whatsapps and, and 150 emails and and getting on a plane every day and 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 literally you know getting up from from seven in the morning till 10 o'clock at night non-stop works at nothing it's it's a jolt i'm like fuck what am i going to do with my time and my days and initially you spend your time looking at what stuff that you used to do kind of having an opinion on it and whatever um some things would 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 ricochet around in my head like what the fuck's going on here you know and, and and whatever and then gradually you just find new things to do i have some projects uh some projects in 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 Uh, property i'm I'm looking at some art uh we're doing a little bit of traveling doing all the things that normal people would do if they led normal lives and they they didn't have a job that was 24 7 and listen those those hours i'm talking about weren't just weekdays workdays. they were like weekends as well there was no off switch and um uh, um, so it's 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 a realignment but you know it's just like we talked about it earlier, some people that are not with us anymore because they worked so hard as well. And, you know, I was 60 last November and I just felt I want to be around when I'm 70. I don't want to die of a heart attack when I'm 63. I'm so all of these things, you know, the culture shift, COVID, having time for my children, and for my wife, my own health. They were all pointing in the same direction. Um, but, you know, and then you just learn to recalibrate yourself. I am going to step back in again. I am going to give people, um, if they want it, if they're interested, the benefit of my experiences and my and and, kind of I I do believe that things are so extreme now. Everybody reads from the same playbook that traditional values are going to become more important. Um, And, you know, I have an opinion on all of that. So maybe I'll just uh, start shouting about things in, in the same way that I used to.
0: Well, we can't. We, you know, good men like you don't come a lot, and that's why you've been a perfect role model as far as running a record label, A promotions guy. It's something that's in your DNA. I can't see you telling us completely. I'm gone. I'm gone. You know. You know. Uh,
1: I had to. I had to. You know, um, take a step back and recalibrate, and and look at look at things with a through different lenses and and uh etc and, and just i just couldn't go continue to go um uh and and work in in, in that way and and uh and, and i think the universe is challenging for a lot of people now and and uh i think that a lot of people get sucked into they see success and they want to replicate it but success is 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 not just about monetary value you know and i keep repeating myself about the cultural values of things and having longevity and standing for something um and and, uh, those values need to be um represented to artists because i think that everybody just looks well not everybody but most people just look at the fast tracks of success and not necessarily the hard work that sometimes makes a difference
0: so truly grafting and the water adds and stir doesn't work in this game. You got to, you still got to put the time, time in.
1: I mean, you know, if you get lucky and you have a viral moment and it just takes you past all of the, all of the hard graph that you need to do. Sure. I mean, you know, but if you could do the hard graph and you get the viral moment, at least you have good principles and good ethics and you have integrity and you understand the slog and why that that's important as well. Um, if it comes too easy to, for you, Sometimes you don't have that depth that I think is really important to an artist that that is really uh, meaningful to a lot of people. Off kilt, I got
0: to ask you this question: Football is the national English pastime. Which team do you support, Simon? Simon?
1: Um, I, su- I support QPR, which is is a. Uh, 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 an example of a really terribly run business and football club. Um, so I look at their results. I don't go anymore. It's uh, it's not good for my soul to, to, to go and feel angry. A bit like I was talking about music, you know? <laughs> I'm
0: sorry. That was one of the questions that came up. They wanted to know, you know, your allegiance. Um, I, I think for what we have done today has been monumental and we've covered a hell of a lot of of uh, ground. And I think one last question is where do you see the next parts of music going? I know. Cause you've been part of the glitter box thing and soulful house thing. Do you see this nineties golden era thing making its resurgence back? Or do you see something changing differently?
1: I think that I hope that people see the value of collaborating and, 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 and the value of, of real musicians you know, I I often say if kings of tomorrow finally and fish go deep the cure and the cause and and uh, were released today that uh, it, they may not be hits because uh, um, because people find it really hard to support new music. When you're a DJ, you know you, you're you're re-editing classics because it's it's easy for you, but the future needs classics as well. We can't keep playing the same records, and I hope that will be recognised. People will go in and make new music, and, and producers will collaborate with vocalists and songwriters, and string arrangers, and and, and, and and make music that has some some real depth to it and longevity, um, and will be the dance floor records. You know, it, like someone like Dame's Brown on Defected, may not hit the numbers today, but I'm kind of hoping that a future, um, a future Drake or a future Eminem or a future 50 cents will sample that record and it will have its day and become popular again because culturally it was relevant enough for someone to go i found this record from back in the day and not many people know about it but geez that loop that loop something special in the same way as you did when you when you looped um Film houston i'm here again for powerhouse you found that record and it meant something that one moment and then it just and then you put a song on top today people would just do the loop they wouldn't put the song on top i'm hoping people will find the vocalist and put the song on top of a great loop or some great music or something that someone's produced that's what i'm hoping
0: me too that's always been the problem it's cuz a lot of these guys now it's like we said it before just add the water and stir and they want just quick hits they want to be in and out they don't want to put the time in but the thing is different from back in the day to today shelf life of tracks 2 3 weeks weeks that's a big problem so to make that financial investment for some people they don't see it you want to be you, yeah you want you want
1: 2 3 decades yeah the, re- the records we talked about now, I mean, you know, don't leave me this way, five decades. Five fucking decades. That's how long great music lasts. So let's strive to make great music. Let's strive not to make a record that lasts just for a weekend and plummets out the Beatport chart 10 days after you first released it. Let's strive to make that record that in 50 years' time, whoever's doing Croatia or playing in Ibiza will go, I'm going to play that classic because it it it's had that resonance for 50 years it's that good yeah that's what we need to strive for not not a, like not a moment
0: i know i battle this all the time time
1: good yeah i don't think we can go anywhere from there lenny <laughs>
0: No, that's it. You you covered you covered everything. I'm just sorry if I mute you. I you covered everything I can, you know, possibly think of that people are thinking at home and stuff, and what makes someone like yourself tick, and what's the thought process behind your madness? Because that's really what it is. Because sometimes you see things others don't see, and
1: that's what makes you who you are. You are. But isn't that a DJ hearing a record? It's it it literally boils down to that fundamental thing: is listening to something and hearing it for the first time and going i know the place for that record whether it be on the dance floor or on the radio or even if it's just at home you know when you're making out with your partner you know the re- a record has to have a meaning what is the meaning of that record um and then and then just just being the ambassador for that put you know just going i'm going to champion this record and um you know, I don't know who, who where to go for the champions these days. So, anyway, there you go. I don't want to be the money old guy. I feel no, like I'm No, t- you are
0: got to be the money old guy because I'm going to ask you to, to leave us on a high note. To these young kids that are watching this, what's the formula for them that they should be doing now? What's it in for them now? What's what So that we create the next champions.
1: Find your own lane. Don't follow. Don't be the second somebody. Be the first somebody. Look at what what what, what you're passionate about and what you believe in and champion it and, and just be fearless. Just go for it. Don't play the same game as everybody else because nobody wants mark II. Everybody wants the real deal. So be the real deal.
0: On that note, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Mr. Simon Dunmore, who's live via Cassis from Ibiza and his beautiful garden. And he was in a pleasure to hear him tell us all this without without having anyone bang in his door saying, "Simon, you got to take this call." Simon, you got. He was able to be eloquent, relaxed, which is not something I normally get a chance to see, but it's nice. Nice that we were able to have this time together. And I don't know if there's anything more you, Any want, more to you to want to say. To.
1: No, I'm just, a, I'm just a little puzzled Lenny. I'm puzzled. Right. Because you said powerhouse is 25 years old. Yeah. Okay. And you're 29. So that made you four. <laughs> when you made the record. And I know, you know, I know people start young that side of the pond, but, uh, That's uh, that's pretty impressive. So uh, congratulations on your birthday and thank you for the invitation. Much, much appreciated. Um, And uh, to anyone that has listened, I hope that uh, it's been insightful and uh, um, believe in yourselves. Be, you know, we're waiting for you to make a difference.
0: And on that note, everyone, thank you for all of you for tuning in. To our stories, don't go anywhere yet, Mr. Dunmore. And everyone have a good night around the world. Catch us next week. We have more in store. And once again, toodaloo and good night. Thank you.